John chapter 13. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God, he rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this passage before us now. We thank you that you've set your spirit to inhabit your word so that we can actually see it so that we don't have to stare at it blindly, as some do. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would unstop our ears now, and that, and that he would open our eyes and illuminate the text and apply it to our condition. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. There's this story told in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, of this Amishman, an Amishman who was stuck in the middle of the road, his mule would just not move. And it wasn't just any road, it was Route 30 in Lancaster. So it's the tourist thoroughfare there, right? And traffic was backed up about half a mile already. And this animal would not budge. This Amishman tried cajoling the animal, sweet talking the mule, you know? He tried yelling at it, screaming at it calling him all kinds of things that if the bishop heard, he would have been sitting on the back row the following Sunday. But to no avail, this mule had his hooves stuck firmly in the ground, and he would not go. And along the opposite side of the road, along comes a, a neighbor of this Amishman, a fellow Amishman. And he sort of looks at what's going on, pulls his buggy off to the side of the road, crosses the road, gets a debrief from the owner of the mule in regard to what's going on, shakes his head crosses back over there, goes to the back of his buggy, lifts up the tarp, pulls out a two-by-four, walks back across the street, looks that mule square in the face, and cracks him with that two-by-four right between the eyes and says very quietly and, and simply, gee and the mule just takes off. And the exasperated owner of the mule looks at this guy and says, oh, my word. He said, I have tried everything. I've called him every name in the book. I have screamed. I've tried sweet talking. I've tried all of those things. And his neighbor looked at him and said, that's true. But he said, I got his attention first, didn't I? So you've heard the axiom before, actions speak louder than words. And this isn't always true. But it's, it's sometimes true. And Jesus, in this passage before us today, he begins his teaching, he begins this long discourse, not with words that, that might have been missed, but with an action that would burn in the hearts and minds of his disciples, I'm certain, as long as they walked the earth. Scripture tells us that Jesus rose from the supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel, and he girded himself, and then washed the feet of his disciples. 
You know, Jesus' disciples were pretty preoccupied on this particular evening. In Luke's gospel, we find that as Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, right, as he's, as he's instituting this meal, which we celebrate every Sunday and partake of every week, some of the disciples were over in a corner arguing who was the greatest, right? That's what's going on in this room. So there's some division there. We also know that the disciples were pretty preoccupied with the fact that they had just entered the lion's den, right? They knew what was up. Jesus had told them. They're in Jerusalem because of the Passover. They know that the religious leaders are out to get Jesus, probably to kill him, right? And they wondered, what, what does this mean for me? What, what does this mean for a follower of Christ? So these guys were pretty preoccupied. And Jesus acted in a way to both get their attention and to teach them through this activity that was before him. But before we get into the actual activity in this passage, there's something here in the text that I want you to notice. I want you to see how the gospel writer John sort of sets, sets the table here, all right? John draws a contrast between Judas and Jesus in these first couple of verses, these verses I just read. He draws a contrast between Judas, who's a son of Satan, and Jesus, who is filled with love, motivated by love, and by a knowledge of God, his Father. Verse 1 tells us that uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus talks about his abiding love for his own and how he's loved them and will love them till the end. And then verse, in verses 2 and 3, we read, And the supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going to God, he rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. So we have two men here motivated by their fathers, but they're very, very different fathers. Back in chapter 8 of this same gospel, right, Jesus saves this woman who's caught in adultery. She's about to be stoned. And the Pharisees enter into debate with Jesus over his claims about himself. And Jesus says there, I'm the light of the world. And he says, I'm with the Father who sent me. You're from beneath. And he says, I'm from above. Well, these, well, these statements, understandably, poured fuel on a fire. And, and the debate rose to quite a crescendo. And Jesus exclaims, you're of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And here's Judas, right, with the very same father, behaving very much like a son of his father. He's a deceitful man. And John, from the start here, contrasts the actions and the origins of these two men. You have the son of God versus the son of Satan. You have a son of loyalty versus a son of betrayal and disloyalty. You have the faithfulness of Jesus and the humility of Christ contrasted with the pride and the arrogance of Judas. And it's just something that I wanted to point out there. Again, verse 4 tells us that when the supper was ended, that Jesus rose from the table and he laid aside his garments and he... Uh, picked up a towel, and he girded himself. And then in verses 5 to 11, we have Jesus washing 
the disciples' feet. Now, what, what Jesus was doing here was certainly teaching the disciples something, teaching them something about humility, teaching them something about servanthood, right? And we're going to get back to this a little bit later. We're going to come back to this. But I think that he was actually doing something more here. I think this, you know, this was among his last hours with his disciples. And I think he was providing a dramatic illustration of his entire ministry. I think what Jesus was doing here was, was deliberately and, and methodically working out a parable for the instruction of his disciples. He was painting a vivid and lasting picture of everything that he had come to do, was doing, and would do for them and expected them to do. In verse 4, again, we're told he rose from the supper. He rose from the supper. Well, this had already been done in a far greater way 33 years ago when he rose from his throne in glory and took on flesh and came to earth in the form of a babe in Bethlehem in, in a humility that you and I don't even know in, in, in a manger. And the next thing we see in verse 4 is that, is that Jesus laid aside his garments. Well, he'd done that before as well, right? Because Paul tells us in his letter to the saints at Philippi that when Christ came into the world, he laid aside, just like those garments in the upper room, he laid aside that glory which was his so he could appear as a true man and not blind us with his celestial glory as he encountered people upon the earth. So Jesus had both risen before and he'd both laid aside before. And then in verse 5, we read that he, he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Well, in a few hours, in a few hours, he was going to pour out a lot more than that, right? He was going to pour out his life. He was going to pour out his blood for humankind through his atonement. And at the end of this parable, all we need to do is skip down to verse 12. For there we see that when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down again. In the same way, after Christ's work was accomplished, after his death and resurrection and ascension, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father and sits there today interceding for us, ruling and reigning with a scepter in his right hand that extends to every corner of this earth that we live in and occupy. Do you see how this in microcosm is an illustration of everything that Christ came to do of his entire earthly ministry. It's really, it's really wonderful. He's showing them one more time all that he has done and something of what's expected of them as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, of course, in the, in the middle of all this, you have Jesus' activity, which is, which is the heart of this thing, and you have Peter's protest. So try, try and place yourselves there just for a second, Okay. Jesus is going about the room from disciple to disciple, disciple, face to foot, washing their, washing their feet. You know, I'll, I'll bet those disciples, I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room as they watched their Lord and Savior conducting this activity. I'll bet they were staring at each other in, in disbelief over what this teacher, over what this respected rabbi was doing. He had no business doing this sort of thing. This is the type of activity that was relegated to a servant in the house, and not just any servant. The, the lowest servant 
on the totem pole. And, and, when Jesus, and when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter just can't contain himself anymore. And if you know anything about the disciples, you bet, you bet a million dollars that the one who's going to raise his voice and, and have an objection to what Jesus is doing and actually give voice to that objection, objection is going to be Peter. But, but uh, Peter just blurts out, he can't contain himself any longer. He says, you're going to wash my feet. You're going to wash my feet. And, and Jesus says, what I do now, you, you, you don't understand, but, but, but you will know after this. And of course, Peter says, you, you shall never wash my feet. It's, in, <laughs> it's interesting because Peter was humble enough to recognize the inappropriateness of what was going on, but he wasn't humble enough to keep his mouth shut, right? So he wasn't humble enough to refrain from, from talking back to his Lord and Savior. You know, a lot of people look at this passage and they say, ah, the humility of Peter, right? But upon, upon closer inspection, right, of these verses, it, it, you find yourself looking at Peter and saying, man, that's bold. That's arrogant. If, if I would have been in the room that night, if I would have been one of the disciples, I would have taken about four steps back because I was afraid what was going to happen to Peter. You know, he gets struck with lightning or something. I'm a slow learn, right? I've been a Christian walking faithfully with God for about 28 years, and I learned my lessons slowly. But one of the, one of the lessons that I have learned and learned the hard way is that you never say no to God. You never tell him what you're going to do. And you, and, you, and you never, ever tell him what he ought to be doing. Jesus says here, look, if I don't wash you, he says this in verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And I just want to back up here for a second and talk a little bit more broadly about the custom of foot washing and misconceptions that we might have about this first century activity Whenever we think about the Lord's Supper being celebrated between Christ and his disciples, what do we think of? We think of Leonardo da Vinci, don't we? We think of that painting of the Last Supper. And I'll bet if you're my age, maybe not for younger kids, but if you're my age, I bet all of you have seen that copy of that painting hanging in some relative's home. I know for me, it was my Uncle Charles and Aunt Ruth, and they won this painting at the Sarasota Christian School benefit auction, and it hung in their dining room for about 25 years, and I used to stare at it some when I'd be down there at Christmas in, in their home. But you have this depiction by Leonardo da Vinci of Jesus presiding over a table with an even number of disciples on both sides, and they're sitting in chairs, much like you're sitting in right now, and they're sitting around a table much like you have in your dining rooms. And oddly, they're all sitting on the same side of the table. I don't, I don't know why. Apparently, Jesus had hired a photographer for the occasion. I'm not sure what that was all about exactly. But, but if you know anything about Old Testament culture, if you know anything about it at all, you know that that is not the way folks ate dinner. That's not the way they approached food, right? Um, folks in that day would be reclining. They'd be reclining on mats, around a table, that, around a hard surface, a table of sorts, that was just a couple of inches off the ground, all right? Just a couple of inches off the ground. Anyway, I'm saying all this to give you a better idea of the importance of foot washing. You know, in the summers when our children were young, um, 
my mom used to call them little shavers, in part because we used to shave the boys' heads. Just That's what we did every summer. We dipped them for lice, shaved them, and we sent them out to play, and we'd see them again when school started, kind of. But anyway, um, the kids would just play out, the play out back, and they'd play out back all day. And especially the boys, they would get filthy, like the three little pigs had nothing on my, on my boys. By the end of a day, they'd run around barefooted, They'd run from the house down to the pond and the pond to the woods, and they'd be playing football. We had the uh, McClellans on one side of us. We had the Rosennis across the street. We had the Bakers at the end of the cul-de-sac, and there were other kids. There were about 20 children the same age between the nine houses that were part of our cul-de-sac, and it was, it was glorious. But about 6 o'clock, Kimberly would step out onto the porch, and she'd call the boys in. Grace, you know, didn't stay outside quite as long as the boys. She'd call the boys in for for dinner, and what's the first thing she'd say when they walked in the door? That's right, I need you to wash up, go wash up, right? And what did she mean when she said that? She was talking about their hands and their faces, right? She was talking about their hands and their faces. Now, why wasn't she addressing their most filthy appendage, right, appendages? Why wasn't she addressing their feet? Well, because those feet were to be tucked squarely under a table, and they were most of the time when we were, when we were dining. So it wasn't a, as it wasn't a concern. But, but in Jesus' day, my point in saying all this is that in Jesus' day, without a table, a person's feet were only a couple of inches from a partner's head, all right? So people would typically recline on their left elbow and use their right hand for eating, right? Their right hand for consuming, and they'd have their bodies extended out the side and the back. But, but the washing of feet in Jesus' day was a big deal because you could see feet, right? Unlike our house, you could see feet, you could smell feet. So my point is, is that foot washing wasn't just a kindness. That foot washing in Jesus' day was a necessity. But, but Christ's response to Peter, right, to Peter's objection in verses 10 and 11, indicates that he wasn't talking so much about a physical cleansing as he was a spiritual one. Jesus says here, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And then John goes on to give us some commentary. He says, for Jesus knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So Jesus isn't talking about physical dirt here. He's talking about sin. He's talking about spiritual dirt. Jesus is explaining that Peter, as, as opposed to Judas, is a justified person and therefore needs cleansing only from the world's contaminating effects of sin. And it's the same with us, right? We're like, we're like Peter. We, we are Christ. We're, we're justified, right? We're part of the camp. We're part of the flock. We've been declared righteous by God's sovereign decree. But we need cleansing. All of us need cleansing. Constant cleansing from our repeated defilements. Every Sunday when we come into this space, when we come into this building, we drop to our knees, don't we? And we confess our sins because the weight and the filth of the world is upon us. And our spirit and our flesh fight through the week. And even with the Spirit's help, we're overcome. We have things to confess. So we drop to our knees and confess our sins. And Christ, who's faithful and just to, to hear us, 
cleanses us from our sins and makes us righteous once more. And then we hear these wonderful words from Duane. He says, arise and hear the good news of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we sing in response to that. It's glorious, but in a very real way, Christ washes our feet every single Lord's day. Okay, now back to the passage that's before us. After washing the disciples' feet, Jesus resumes his place at the table and he begins to teach. He teaches something of the significance of what he's just done. In verse 15, he says, For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Jesus is teaching us about how we should be behaving toward one another and the, and the attitude that we should have and the servanthood that we should bring day in and day out as we look to each other and to the folks around us. And we, and we know that this is the point of Christ's action in this foot, foot washing because immediately after doing this, Jesus gives this command in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you. He says that, that you love one another as I have loved you, as I have just demonstrated, right? As I have just demonstrated, this is in the same chapter. This is just a couple of verses later when he gives this command. And it's no coincidence that it's given in this fashion. As I have loved you, just as I loved you a few minutes ago in all humility, that you love one another. Jesus says a new command I give you, but in fact, it's not... It's not actually a new command in its requirements, right? Because back in Leviticus 19, 18, this command was given. It was given 2,000 years ago. It was given, it was given through Moses to the people of Israel. God says, do not seek revenge. This is Leviticus 19, 18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 2,000 years before. But, but, but there's a sense in which this is new. There, there's, a, there's a very big sense in which Jesus is speaking truth straight up high octane. Because he's talking about a love that's connected to, to service and humility and a pouring out and a bending low, and a giving yourself away in a way that the folks back in Moses' day didn't understand at all. It's talking about picking up your cross and, and serving Christ in the way that, that Christ served and serving your neighbor in the way that Christ served his neighbor. And as we look at the example from Scripture this morning, let's, let's remember who's performing the action here in John 13 and be awed by it. This is the, this is the second person of the Godhead, right? This is the person who spoke the world's into existence. This is that one who existed before time. It's he who bent over, nose in the filthy feet of his disciples. Many of you know that in, in John's gospel, we have these famous I am statements. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. I mentioned that before in in. Chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. In chapter 15, he says, I'm the true vine. You, know, you are the branches. And there are these other I am statements. In John 8, Jesus also states, 
back there when he's in conflict with the religious leaders. He says, before Abraham was, he says, I am. All right. And of course, the Jews just exploded because they were familiar with what Jesus was saying when he attributed to himself that I am, because that goes all the way back to Exodus, Exodus chapter three, when God says, I am that I am to Moses at the scene of the burning bush. And there's this great I am statement in our passage for today as well. Jesus, um, but you don't see it right away because it gets translated a little bit differently. But back in John chapter 13, in verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And that I am he um, in this passage right here is translated I am in the, in the very same vernacular, in the very, in the very same language, that, that Old Testament language is translated I am back in chapter 8. Jesus reminds the disciples that the one who's about to be betrayed, that the one who's just washed their feet is the I am. He is God. And if God has bent low, face to foot, in order to, in order to serve us, then what right do we have to grumble and complain and to vex and, and throw fits over the service that we're called to do to others? You say, all I do all day is serve, serve, serve. And you know what? If you're a mother of young children, I'll bet that about summarizes it correctly. All you do all day is serve, 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 and pour yourself out. And I say to you, as a former minister of the gospel, way to go. Good on you. That's exactly the way it's supposed to look. There is blessing that comes with service. And God, in his kindness, has given us every day many opportunities to care for one another and for our parents and for our children and for our neighbors and for the suffering and those in difficulty of all sorts, whether they're emotional or, or spiritual or financial. We open up our Bibles, don't we? And we open up our homes and our lives and our wallets to such as God has placed in front of us and we're to do it joyfully. This was the way of Jesus. This is what he's demonstrating in the upper room, and this is to be our way. Paul tells us in Philippians that our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, not just any servant, the lowliest servant in the house, right? We see that from our passage today, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you think humility was demonstrated in the upper room. Boy, how do you just wait a few hours? Because in a few hours, our Lord and Savior, that same servant king, would be hanging on a cross naked, pouring himself out for the likes of us. Listen. God has done some things for all men, right? 
but he's done all things for some men. God has done some things for all men, right? He's given them life. He sustains them. The rain falls on the just. It falls on the unjust. It does. He reserves all men for a season from hell, right? He's done some things for all men. But he's done all things for some men. And we're in this latter camp. You and I, we're in this blessed position, We don't lack and will never lack any good thing. Christ loves us. He loves you. He's gone to prepare a place for you. We're told so in John chapter 14. He has blessed you beyond anything that you even understand because we can't begin to recount all God's kindnesses in in just one day. And, And when he left us, he sent us a helper, his Holy Spirit as our comforter and our aid. And to enable us to to keep his commands by not just doing the activities that we need to do, but by doing them joyfully, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, have all been worked into us so that we can work them out as we serve our our neighbors, even our nearest neighbors, our own families. God has done all things for us. So... I guess the the question for me is, why is it so hard for me to do for others? Why is it so hard for me to do that? Last Sunday, um, we installed three more deacons at the church, right? This is what got me to thinking about this sermon. I always have such a hard time figuring what I'm going to preach that it takes me till Thursday to figure out what I'm going to say when I eventually get in the pulpit. But we installed three deacons. And I was thinking to myself as I'm watching them get installed, first of all, I'm thinking, praise God for raising up men who are willing to serve in this way. And there was a little part of me that was saying, thank God, now how many do we have? I think that's six. That's good. They can be busy serving the, serving the body of Christ. I don't serve like I used to, right? And I guess part of it for me, and this isn't some place where I'm going to, this isn't some big confessional for, uh, for me, or it's not to be a confessional But I'm just saying I've had to be honest with myself this last week as I'm getting ready to preach this sermon because I kind of feel sometimes like, you know what, I've done my part. I I did my share. I I served and poured myself out here for 12 years. And I'll bet some of you struggle with the same things. Well, somebody will get it, right? The email went out. Somebody will get it. But it always seems to be the same 10 or 15 people that end up putting up the blinds or end up setting up the chairs early on the property or end up signing up for meals and And you're missing out on a blessing. God's called us to serve. We're not fully fulfilled until we're doing what he's called us to do. And we're to be servants just as he served. When the call goes out to prepare a meal or unload a moving truck or when any need is manifest among us, we should be quick to action. And the servanthood should extend beyond our doors, right? It should extend to our neighbors. This is a great way to evangelize. The text before us this morning bears a message that we must remind ourselves of every day, The Lord served. The Lord serves. He serves us through the preaching of his word. He serves us at this table over here. He serves us by washing our feet as we're confessing our sins. He serves us by interceding for us before the throne of God every day. Our Lord serves. And, And if we want to be accounted faithful servants of the Most High God, then we need to serve as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, 
We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And I pray that as we think on these things that you've shown us today in John 13, that you'd give us all a place to start when it comes to application. Lord God, teach us more and more what it is to love as as your son loved and to, to serve as he served. Teach us more and more to to live and to talk and to walk in a way that pleases you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.